0: Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood.co.uk. That's s double e change You'll be able to catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 28 with the title, Finding the Magic. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Mark Lee. Mark describes himself as a reformed accountant and magician. When I asked Mark to describe his superpower, he said that it is his ability to create acronyms on the fly, or is that TCAOTF? I wonder. Hello, Mark. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So, Mark, tell me, finding the magic—what does that mean to you? <laughs> it it probably relates
1: back to uh, as a teenager. My first foray into business was as a children's party entertainer. And I then continued as a, as a magician at parties and functions. And it's always been my hobby. If you like other, other teenagers, 20 somethings were going to football or rugby or sports events. And I was going to kids parties and entertaining them using magic. And, uh, it's always been a part of my life. I've been a member of the magic circle for over 20 years and I'm now treasurer of the magic circle. So I get to combine my, my professional experience as a chartered accountant with being a passionate magician as well and I, I look back and I realized that I hid my passion in magic from my clients over the years although my colleagues knew about it and I was always doing tricks in the pub or in the office uh, in between client work obviously but I kept it secret from clients because I was always concerned it might adversely impact my professional credibility. And since I left practice, after I qualified as chartered accountant, I was a tax advisor for many years. And then about 15 years ago, I decided, having been made redundant for the second time, I'd focus instead the rest of my career on doing those things I really enjoyed, speaking, writing and mentoring. And I learned that one of the key things you need to do as an independent person, and indeed it's probably true for all of us, is to share... a about yourself. People don't just buy you because of your technical experience. And I'm much less shy about revealing my interest in magic now. Indeed, there's invariably a trick or two in in my talks when I'm on stage, even though my audiences are accountants. And I frequently point out that if they want to be better remembered, referred and recommended, they need to reveal something of themselves. That doesn't mean they have to become magicians though, but everybody should find the magic uh, in their own career, background, experience, passions, life, loves, family, or whatever.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I mean, we, we talk, you know, in D&I circles about bringing your whole self to work, so you, you are actively hiding an element of who you are or were yeah. um, for fear of embarrassment, shame, or stigma or something that you felt it would damage your professional credibility. That's, that's, that's really kind of interesting, and it's magic.
1: Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> It, I think I had, I, it's also a function of a couple of bad experiences that I had. Uh, one was I turned up, at an, turned up at an interview in the days before the internet. So there was no profile of me online. There was no photo of me on the CV. And I sat down uh, in front of the senior partner of a large firm of accountants. And he did that thing he'd been trained to do to try and put the candidate at their ease. So he scanned down the CV and he looked at the, interests bit. And under interests, I put magic, member of the magic circle. And I to this day, I remember him looking up and looking at me going, I see you're a magician. I think that says a lot about you. I don't recall where the conversation went from that, but I do know I didn't get the job. And I always wondered if that was because he perceived that maybe I was good at deceiving people and that maybe that was why he shouldn't recruit me. And I think that may have had an impact as to me uh, keeping it uh, hidden for a while. Then the other experience, uh, many, many years later, I'd been headhunted. uh, It was before I was headhunted uh, by BDO, Large Firm of Accountants. I worked at another sizable firm and Because I shared the magic with colleagues and friends and with journalists, and I was making a bit of a name for myself in in the accounting world as a commentator, and in those days there was a a publication, which is now only available online, Accountancy Age, which we used to joke was a bit like the sun of the accountancy world. No offense to the serious publication that it is these days. Um, But the back cover always had a, a taking stock page, which is a bit like sort of accountancy rate version of private eye, you know, poking fun at you know, stuffy old accountants. But they always had a feature on accountants who were a little bit unusual, who had un- interesting hobbies. And I had featured on the back cover two or three times. And I remember one occasion, uh, I walked into a, my largest client's office, the finance director, with a couple of co- uh, colleagues. And as I walked in, I could see that on the notice board behind him was pinned the latest back cover from Accountancy Age with a picture of me doing a magic trick circled in big red ink and an arrow pointing at it going, should we take tax advice from this guy? I went, Oh my God. And I, they, they knew me well enough. It was a wind up, but for that split second, I had thought that I'd damaged not only my credibility but risked the client uh, to the firm. And I think that also made me a little reluctant to share the magic too much with uh, with clients for for far too long, looking back, because the other thing I've learned as I've got older and wiser is most people love magic. Most people like the entertainment side of it. And it's always about being entertaining. It's never about being clever or I can do stuff you can't do. It's about entertaining with magic. And most people like it, love it. And it might well have helped cement more client relationships than I would have lost. So I I think it's a huge mistake when I look back.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm almost sat here speechless just listening to that story because – for it to carry that kind of stigma. But then I think the word, the way you described it was magic could be your, your, your practice of being deceitful, uh, at misleading people. So I, I suppose it is a, a bit of this, uh, paradox between a trusted accountant and a magician. I mean, obviously we, we often want our tax advisors to magic our tax away, but we want to do it in, in plain view. I've so never I heard guess- that one
1: before today. <laughs> No, 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 no so tongue very firmly in cheek.
0: Ah, okay. Please magic away my tax. Yeah. <laughs> <So, laughs> I see you have your wand. I mean, for, for those, this is a, a podcast, but Marcus actually sat there with a, a bookshelf behind him, and on the bookshelf was a magic wand, sort of strategically placed, just ready to magic people's accounts. Well, well, <laughs> well I, I,
1: I haven't been in practice for many, many years, but um, – There is often a magic wand behind me just because it it prompts conversation. And also for those people who like to study bookshelves, almost all of the books on on the shelf are business related, uh, lead generation, marketing, the sort of things that I talk to uh, firms of accountants about from a strategic perspective or uh, coaching and mentoring, which I do with individual uh, accountants, uh, particularly those running their own practices, but if you look carefully, you will also see the Paul Daniels Adult Magic Book, and also I've—I can't remember why I put it there, but I've got the—I'm uh, uh, sorry, I haven't a clue—anthology uh, there as well, uh, just to show that I'm not all about the serious and the heavyweight.
0: It's—it's it's really interesting. This has sparked a memory that I'd forgotten all about. I did my first magic gig. When I was about eight or nine years wow. old, wow! Uh, and my parents were very keen at the time for me not to be paid because they didn't want to make, make me a professional magician. at the I of eight or nine. Oh my goodness! It was my, it was my. I think it was eight or nine, maybe ten. I was, I was very young. I remember it was our next door neighbour. They had younger children, and they they knew that I was I did some magic tricks. I had my it was it hanky panky magic
1: You've box. You never told me time. this
0: i i forgot all about it until you mentioned <laughs> i forgot all about it so that they knew i i did sort of this magic and i used to get magic these magic boxes it was a hanky panky magic yeah, yeah, i used yeah, to have the, yeah. a blue one and a green one there's a like a bigger one you can get all the little things so i i, I was quite into it at the time and they asked me if I, i'd be a, a magician at their their children's party next door there's about eight or ten kids and i remember doing it practicing all these little tricks and yeah you know, obviously you fluff them up a little bit but yeah you know, i've my audience were probably five or six, so it was probably an e- easy audience. And uh, yeah, so I did my, my first magic gig at probably the age of eight or nine. Well, um, um, I, no idea why I didn't pursue it. it. It just it was one of those things I did, and it dropped away when I, maybe in my teenage years. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I'm I impressed.
1: I, I did my first gig for my sister when I was about 13, and then I got a booking for a cousin's daughter uh, when she was going to be six. And the cousin asked how much I wanted to charge. And I I had absolutely no idea. And so I said, um, remember, this was a long time ago. Uh, I said, uh, how does 25p an hour sound? Which I can see the smile on your face. It might not sound like much, but it's 25p more than I'm being paid today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, And then I realized that, hang on, a children's party is only two or three hours uh, and we we agreed to round it up to a pound. So my my first professional fee was one pound. Still remember it, and I still have that pound here today. Do- no, I don't.
0: But I mean, I mean, but well, not to show your age. Back in those days, it was a paper pound, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it probably was. <laughs> it was Absolutely. one of these big, big paper pounds. Yeah,
1: yeah, not. <laughs> no, it was the five. It was the <laughs> fives that were a five
0: that big, and I don't remember those.
1: Yeah, no, I'm only a few
0: years older than you. <laughs> But you no, know, I, I used to work with a uh, somebody when well, I worked for Coates Bank uh, back in the mid mid to late nineties, and I used to work with a, uh, a fellow there who was um, he was in the magic circle, a magician, and he he would always do magic randomly you know, during the day. We, we, I was in I was in the IT and in computing, so there's a lot of time sitting around watching stuff load or or when we're installing things. So there's always a lot of time to kill. And uh, I remember one weekend we were doing this major upgrade, and he taught me how to juggle three um, three balls. Um, I, I, I can't do probably more than six or seven cycles of the three balls, but he taught me to juggle in the, in the lunch hour. So I, I know I know the theory now. I've just got to practice it to make it work. It's, but yeah, uh,
1: it's like all yeah. these things, isn't it? Practice, practice makes. Yeah. I was going to say, practice makes perfect. Practice makes permanent. But if you don't get good mm. training or good teaching. Good encouragement, then you practicing stuff just makes your habits permanent. It doesn't necessarily make make you a good mm. performer of any kind.
0: Yeah, I've always been a little bit envious of people who can, who can juggle because it's such a great little party trick. You can just sort of go, "Oh, there's a fruit bowl there." They just a couple of apples, a couple of oranges, and before you know it, they've got five or six things going around. You think. Oh. That's quite good. I mean, that and playing the saxophone are my two want to be able to do skills. I can, yeah. I can
1: understand that. I, I always feel a little bit alienated when people start talking about juggling as a link directly from magic because they're two very different skills. Uh, and I can't, I yeah. can't juggle. <laughs>
0: You can't juggle. I, mean, I, yeah, I mean, played the saxophone. I mean, yeah, I mean, this, this person was a magician, a member of the magic circle, and he taught me to juggle. So there are different things, you're right. I think he, he showed me some coin tricks and how to roll the coin on the back of your knuckles and stuff, um, which is, isn't really magic. It's just good manipulation. Dexterity and practicing. And dexterity. And I, yeah. I,
1: I look back and realize that I pretty much stopped doing as much magic when I left. Practice and went out by myself. Um, again, yeah, when I initially started going to business networking events, again I was concerned. I didn't want to distract people talking about the magic side of my activities as distinct from my business activities. And uh, and as the years passed, and I stopped going to generic business networking events and focused only on events with accountants. It was probably, it became less important to, to be doing, less important to me to be doing magic, to be remembered. So these days it figures in my talks, uh, often as examples of how to be better remembered, referred and recommended, how to stand out from the crowd, from your competitors and from the pack. And I will then often uh, produce a pack of cards and use, use that as an analogy, uh, for how We remember what stands out, so a different colored back card to all the others, for example. And then I will always (laughs) – it's a bit of a cheat. Uh, This was in the days when we could do live events.
0: I remember those days. It wouldn't
1: wouldn't work on on a Zoom or uh, online, I I don't think. I, I would always say, look, it's a rule of the magic." You've heard as part of the introduction, I'm treasurer of the magic circle, and it's a rule of the magic circle, uh, that if you're on stage, you have to perform a magic trick. Would it be okay for me to perform a trick for you? I was ask the audience's permission, and they would say yes. And uh, that's why there will always be you know, one or two tricks during the during the talk. Not so that they will remember me as a magician, but hopefully they'll remember – well, they do remember it was entertaining and the, the magic uh, they enjoyed. Uh, it, it often includes – a a trick at the end where i use a deck of cards to summarize many of the key points i've made and that's also makes it a useful reminder at the end of a talk <laughs>
0: Because magic, it's all about the setup, isn't it? You you do something very early on. Well, I wouldn't say, would say it's all about well, that. <laughs> right, no, right. At the end, you then bring this thing that you've already introduced right at the beginning. So you misdirect people right at the beginning and then and then produce at the but end. I mean, that's, it's, that's how I uh, yeah.
1: it's, it's like it. It's like a well-structured talk, a well-structured routine, well-structured talk, a lot of similarities. And a lot of the skills I bring to speaking on stage uh, or even on camera uh have evolved from the fact that I was speaking to that most difficult of audiences uh from a very early age, relatively early age as a teenager and uh, if you can stand up and entertain and talk to twenty thirty forty fifty kids or hundreds on a couple of occasions, then standing in front of a group of accountants is really not a challenge, particularly I found as I got older and more confident in myself as a person.
0: Hmm. In my in my in my naivety, I, I would say the stereotype magician tends to be a white man. Um, yeah, we look at Paul Daniels, we look at some of the big superstars. They tend to be men, and the women. <clears throat> Dare I say, wear accessories. Oh, his, they were accessories. The, they were looking yeah. good and yeah, catching the bullet in their mouth, having the knife thrown at their head. I mean, that's, that's beyond magicians, but it's all kind of that oh, yeah, entertainment yeah. thing. Um,
1: thank, thank goodness change, things changed enormously. I think it's 20, 20, 25 years ago, the Magic Circle allowed women to join in their own right. And we have the Young Magicians Club as well. And uh, some wonderful female members of both the Young Magicians Club and the Magic Circle. Indeed, one of the graduates from the Young Magicians Club into the Magic Circle became our first female secretary of the Magic Circle in her mid-twenties. And she's now the first female vice president of the Magic Circle. And she's a wonderful, I'm going to say young lady, she's a, a wonderful lady, wonderful performer, great person, and a great role model for other women who aspire to be in magic. And Britain's Got Talent's also been very good. We've had a huge number of women take part uh, on Britain's Got Talent. And also, just in terms of diversity, uh, just this year, one of the finalists uh, was a guy called Richard Essien. He's a member of the Magic Circle, Uh, also known as magical bones, and he told a fabulous story about how he'd been inspired by the first black magician uh, to uh, to to come across i think from America to the u k and you know, seeing seeing a great magician who also happens to be a person of color it was a is a great thrill um yeah I, I as you said before I recognize that i 'm I could be seen as just another old white bloke. For for some years, um, not just in the the magic circle, but I, I'm on the members of commercial board of the Institute of Chartered Accountants, LinkedIn and Wales, you know, me through my involvement at the Professional Speaking Association. For some years, I've recognised the importance of diversity and inclusion and have helped organisers of events recognize that the default choice of an old white bloke is not, is not, is not necessarily the right route to go. And we, before we started recording, we were talking about unconscious bias. And one of the reasons why that happens in my experience is because most old white blokes who are organizing things only know old white blokes and spreading their Sweating their wings. So I'm delighted to have introduced women, people of color to be speakers. It means I don't get as many gigs as I might have done, but frankly, I might just as well be losing them to a more diverse range of speakers or presenters as to younger white people. Yeah, you know, you know, The thing is to make everybody more aware of the breadth of experience and ability out there and th- that doesn't mean limiting ourselves to the historic approach that's always been adopted in the past.
0: And also sometimes it's nice to have someone else entertain you and enlighten you for a change yeah. and not always be the one that's doing the performing. It's nice to sometimes take a back seat oh, yeah. and uh, see younger people come through. Yeah, ab-
1: absolutely. I, I, I can't abide any unfairness or abuse of power. And I, I know that I... So I sense that I feel more strongly about that than many other people of my generation, both in terms of rec- uh, racism, uh, sexism, diversity generally. And I think that is a function of something that I very rarely talk about, which is the fact that I'm white on the outside, but I'm still potentially subject to racism because I'm Jewish. And it, I don't wear it on my sleeve. I don't, uh, it, it rarely comes up in conversation uh, and I'm fortunate I've suffered very little overt racism r- racism but I still think it makes me aware of the tendency towards it and how awful it is when it happens i sadly i know plenty of people who have suffered direct directly and and i'm aware that i'm fortunate to i, I believe the expression, expression i only heard in recent years, passing white, yeah. Um, so I, I, people don't assume that I would be a subject of racism unless they know my uh, my religion, which is an accident of birth, birth parents, of community that I might feel a part of. Didn't change who I am. Didn't change what I do. And the the level of my involvement commitment and practice which has changed enormously both up and down over the years has no bearing on who i am what i do or how anybody engages with me and and i don't see why somebody's color race ge- gender or whatever else should impact uh, the way that people engage with them in in the same way
0: mm. it's very true and I, I meet a lot of people who <laughs> have a call it a, a minority characteristic or a, a, a something about them that is not typical or the majority in the world and they are always more sensitive and more aware of the impact as you say of racism sexism and the need to be inclusive it's often the case where people have never had that experience that they don't see the need to, to be to be thoughtful of it Absolutely. and that, that's they're not aware yeah. it's their they just they just are it's not their fault it's just they've never never had to think, wake up and think about it.
1: And I'm sure that's absolutely right. I, I love the statistic that uh, on average, the average the average human has less than two eyes. Yes, and that's because nobody's got more than two, but there are some people with only one, or or a blind and have have none. And I'm not sure why I thought that was relevant, but. <laughs>
0: i think also the other statistic is that uh on average humans have less than one testicle yes <laughs> <laughs> um which i also thought was quite an interesting uh, concept and people look at you and, go, and then they work it out and then oh yeah i get it now Yeah, it's, it's kind of um because like every man has two and half the population don't have any so yeah it's uh Oh, ding! Your dinner's ready.
1: <laughs> I have no idea what or where that was. I think it was A-L-E-X-A, <laughs> I think it
0: was Alexa. But I'm not going to say the name. Ah, a bit of a <laughs> ping. Yeah. we could talk to Alexa later. Yeah, let try not back to. In the accent again. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're not you're not practicing accountant anymore. But you obviously through your uh, tax advice network, you're you're working with, I presume, practicing tax advisors and accountants. Do you, do you see that industry changing? Because when I, when I first came across the accountancy practice, which was probably in the mid, mid early to mid nineties, where my my best friend, who, was, who ended up being my business partner and my accountant, always positioned himself as a, as a, an accountant with attitude. An accountant was different. wanted to bust this myth of this this stale old accountant. He wanted to come and shake it all up and and give a bit of real. Passion and personality into the into the into the profession. So, do you see that so kind of evolving, or do you still think there's a lot? Of- I
1: there's, there's a lot to be done, but it, it has evolved enormously. When I when I first qualified, the, the the small firm of accountants I worked with, I think the women almost exclusively were secretaries or receptionists. Then um, certainly there would have been a tiny minority. Of uh, of women trainees, um, I've just remembered there there was at least one uh, because we've just time of time of recording we just passed the anniversary fortieth anniversary of losing John Lennon, and I remember Roger Scott, the Capital Radio DJ, and we must have had this playing in the background. We were doing the audit of a a British Legion club, and I was there as a manager with a a, a younger lady who was a trainee i remember roger scott saying and of course we'll always we remember where we were when we heard the sad news of john lennon's death just like we did just like we did when um <laughs> sorry i've no idea where the thing is coming from i'd stop it if i could um yeah and just like we did when we heard that uh, elvis had died or jfk i don't think i would have remembered if if Roger Scott hadn't hadn't announced that, but there was a young lady with me, so we must have had trainees there. And I was I then worked at a, a very large firm of accountants, uh, then called to Ross. It's now Deloitte. And I remember the first female partner there was pregnant, and I believe she was out of the office at the time of the birth for less than a month, in terms of both before and after possibly because at that time she was concerned about the impact on her career if she took what we now recognize to be quite reasonable maternity leave. And a huge change. My son works for KPMG, uh, and not only do they give maternity leave, they give paternity leave there, amazingly generous, things that just wouldn't have happened 30, 40 years ago. And I look at the people I'm connected with on LinkedIn you know, the 11, 12,000 connections I have there, m- many of them are, in fact, the majority of them are probably accountants. But there's a huge number of women and many are, who, who are accountants or bookkeepers or tax advisors, many of them making a point, not only of the fact that obviously they are a woman, but also that they've got attitude and well, clearly they are different to the, the stereotype. The the sad thing is that stereotype uh, goes back as far, not just of the Monty Python uh, classic sketch about the accountant who wanted to be a lion tamer, but wasn't allowed to be because he was too boring. There was also a classic Two Ronnies sketch uh, with Mr. Simpkins from Accounts, whose kids were known as Simpkins and Simpkins. And that also really took the mick out of Accountants. But even back in those days, that stereotype, which has persisted in many people's minds, it's not necessarily about the accountants all being boring. It's the fact that a lot of people consider the accounting and bookkeeping work to be boring. Therefore, if somebody likes or chooses to do that work, by definition, they must be boring. I don't buy that. I don't accept that. And I encourage accountants to stand out from the crowd and show that that they're not boring either, because people you know people want their accounts and books and, and tax work done uh, but generally they want it done by somebody they can relate to and who relates to them and will help them support them, encourage them, and advise them beyond just doing the compliance paperwork and too many
0: people i, I completely agree i mean my as a small business person myself I've I run small businesses for twenty five thirty odd years, so an accountant to me. It's more than just that compliance that yeah, it's just the bookkeeping, the fact and company formations, statutory accounts, all that kind of stuff. It's just a minority. it's the it's that watching eye, that consultancy element that accounts bring and how they understand your business or or have a, an appreciation of other businesses and then can use that expertise to come to yours and advise you and signpost you or, or mentor you. And I think that's the power certainly from a small business perspective.
1: And of course it should be, but many small businesses don't appreciate they can get all that from an accountant. If they've had a bad accountant in the past, they may move to another accountant who operates in much the same way, but it's cheaper. And they don't know what more they could be getting. Uh, so going back to the the title you chose for this podcast, I'd encourage listeners to look at finding the magic in their accountants uh, and getting more from their accountants. But you, you have to pay for that. You don't, if you pay money, you pay peanuts you get monkeys
0: well i mean we're, we're professional speakers we're professional trainers and podcasters and and uh advisors ourselves so we, we appreciate our own brand value on what we do so of course we we, we yeah we, we're the converted so we understand about value and what we can offer i uh, as you're talking now I, I listened about is is there still a perception amongst clients that a man is a better accountant you know, maybe not Maybe women are becoming more successful. They're holding higher, more senior positions in accountancy. But is there still this incumbent male crust, if you like, in the clients that where that women are taking this seriously? Have you still got to try and break through that? I've,
1: I've no idea, but I, I would say, A, my accountant is is a woman. And the I think these days people recognize they need to choose somebody to whom they can relate and i've i've often suggested to some of the female accountants and bookkeepers i know because we, you and i recognize the benefits of having a niche or a clarity of focus as regards your target audience and yeah it doesn't make any difference to an accountant what you know what gender their their client is but many female entrepreneurs business owners may relate better to a female accountant than they will to a male accountant. And thank goodness there's a greater, there's greater choice for them now than there was before. And it, it shouldn't, you know, the gender shouldn't, gender of your accountant obviously shouldn't matter. It's irrelevant. But frankly, in the same way, you, you mentioned my tax advice network, um, which is an online website, lead generation website for accountants and, and tax advisors. And, I always point out to the members who join, put a photo up there because you and I, speaking to the tax advisors, you and I know it shouldn't matter what you look like. The quality of your advice is what, what matters. But I've, I've had this, this network online for 13 years and there is no doubt that the advisors in the network who put up a decent profile photo of themselves with a nice welcoming smile. Get more business than those who put no photo up, or just put a logo there, or a very poorly thought thought through profile photo. And of course, exactly the same is true on LinkedIn and and social media as well, and on personal websites. And and in fact, given the the sort of nature of this, this podcast, I'm reminded also of a conversation I've had when I've been mentoring accountants. I had a a black guy. Uh, accountant who uh, let, let's say uh, his his name was was Steve and because he it was his first name was a, an english name his surname was a, a very african name and when i first met him he didn't have his photo on his website and i said why is that and he said because i don't want to put people off because he was conscious of the prospect of racism, so he didn't have his surname on his website, didn't have a photo on his website. Uh, I said, "Did you ever get racists you know, coming into your office?" He said, "Yeah, I do." I said, "Well, gotta say, Steve, uh, why don't you put your full name and your photo on your website so that you don't have to waste your time with any racists?" Because you're not you know sadly they're not going to change their minds just because they've met you if they're a racist they're a racist until they get to know better but you're wasting your time with racists by letting them come and see you and then be find excuses not to engage with you uh, and even if they do engage with you if they are, if they're still un- if underlying that they're still a racist do you really want them as clients and he took my advice on that and on many other things. Has not looked back. He's gone on to win awards for his accountancy firm. He credits me with all manner of things, most of which are entirely down to him rather than me. But I gave him the confidence to reveal who he really was rather than to hide it.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm trans, transgender. I made a decision very early on to be professionally trans, Rather than hide it, rather than rather than say I'm not, I'm, and then be found out, outed, um, confuse people at a later date. I even put it on my CV when I apply for roles, because uh, I don't want you to hi- I don't want you to interview me and then go, oh, actually, we're not sure. I'd rather you just walked on by and put my CV in, in the in the waste pile. You don't waste my time. I never get to meet you. I just get rejected like everybody else. So I don't. I don't need to care about your your. Uh, your, your, um, prejudices, discrimination, yeah. your prejudices, whatever. Yeah. So I end up working with people who want to work with me and people seek me out to engage with me because they like what I do because of who I am. So it's that bringing your whole self to work, isn't it? Because of my lived experience, because of who I am, the insight that I bring, you're saying about your, your Jewishness mm. or the inside that people may not know your, your magic, your, your diversity of thought that you have around your lived experience. You're, you're bringing all of that expertise into the room not just this tiny little piece. You're able to share much more. And that makes you more relatable. Um, and, and people actually know you. They can trust you because you are open about who you are. I'd
1: li- like to think so. I remember that that conversation with the, the friend I'm calling Steve uh, was helped by – I was running a, a roundtable group of uh, self-practitioner accountants, and there was an Orthodox Jewish guy there who wore a skull cap. And – I hadn't been thinking of him when I said what I said, but he chipped in afterwards and said, that is why there is a video of me wearing my skull cap front and center of my website. Because if somebody is anti-Semitic, I don't want them anywhere near my office. Yeah. There's no point me, me hiding it. And then they come in and I've got to deal with that. That's not going to make my
0: day. Yeah. I I As we're talking about being Jewish, I I was um, fortunate enough to be invited to a a conference to speak uh, in Tel Aviv last summer, and I I was entertained. There was no fee, apart from my expenses and the promise and the promise of a good holiday while I was there. And so I I actually had a five day stay in Tel Aviv. Wonderful. One day that one day was conference, and they I was I was royally entertained. Taken to the Dead Sea, I, I swam or floated in the Dead Sea. I went to is it? There's a, a fort on top of the hill. Is it Mashem Masada? Or Masada. Or something like that? Masada, that's it. Uh, which is actually below sea level, isn't it? Still, even at sure. the top of a mountain. My,
1: my it, knowledge it's, of it's, such it's, things yeah. is not not what one might expect. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and. Over, I think I think it overlooked the Dead Sea or overlooked Jordan. You can yeah. see Jordan from the top. And it was a, a Roman fort or something that was uh, barricaded many, many centuries ago. So we had a fantastic time. And, and it really surprised me about the culture there to learn about the real people's lives because we were spending time with real people, not just in a touristy Mm. way, but in a kind of a businessy sense. And also we were going out in the evenings with families to to understand the culture. So it's really interesting to get to know people and just to know their culture as people, because often we see all the media bias. We hear all this stuff that goes on. You don't get to know the real people. And to to listen to the stories about how they were living in fear, how they – we went around Jerusalem and I, I was in Jerusalem, um, probably 20 or 30 years ago. But this time I went back, the, the borders have moved. The, the, there was areas of Jerusalem I couldn't go anymore. And if you go to the wailing wall, you go to the, under, under the, the tunnels under, under the castle in, in Jerusalem. There, when you come out the other side, you end up actually in, in, uh, the Palestinian part, Jerusalem now. Whereas before you came out into the, into the, into the Jewish side. So things have really changed there. And. Uh, where am I going with this? Oh yes, so, yeah, so, so the, the Wailing Wall. When I went there the first time, I went to the left-hand side of the Wailing Wall, and it was really ah. interesting this time to go back to the right-hand side and wearing a shawl and covering myself yeah. up and, and seeing th- a different perspective on religion and how the women were versus how you're looking at looking over the wall mm. to see the see the uh, the bar mitzvahs and all the other things going on or the uh, the, the other the other celebrations going on. Around the the male Orthodox mm. Jews with their hats and the ringlets yeah. and everything else and the big coats, so it's really really interesting to understand the culture as a woman mm. and how that works in Jewish society. How there's a lot of exclusion of women from a lot of the religious ceremonies. There are a lot of really men only temples and stuff, or, or, or where, where people pray. So yes, it's really interesting to get a different perspective on on that culture b- between two genders.
1: Well, and, and it, it it even goes beyond that. Uh, because you know, some of them, them and, and I think this is the true across, I'm going to say many religions, it's certainly true across um, uh, both uh, Islam and, and Judaism, that the more observant religious, fanatical one is about one's religion, the more exclusion there is and the more focus there is on the male role as, as opposed to the, the female role and the more and it's of the and the limited diversity uh there is the but even within a religion and we we see this with uh the shiites and sunni muslims we see this across the different r- levels of religious observance within the jewish community both in, in israel and ar- around the world um that effectively there's discrimination against Those who don't do everything. I I went to a a Jewish secondary school um, because my parents had uh, limited ability to teach me very much about the religion. Uh, And I remember I came away feeling I'd been discriminated against because we didn't belong to an Orthodox synagogue grouping. Now, bear in mind, in the UK, there are sort of four different levels of belonging to a Jewish. Uh, to, a, to a synagogue group, uh, or or you might not belong to one at all. Um, but even those who be- actually, there's possibly more than four or five. I won't bother boring you with them. Uh, but even those that belong to an ostensibly Orthodox group may not be practicing in an Orthodox way, following all the laws. It's just what they've done traditionally. Um, but because I didn't belong to that group, I had religious studies teachers, who, and I still remember, who looked down on me because my family had chosen a different level of of practice and observance, um, and I think that that turned me off the whole thing for for quite a while. So, it, and and I, I've equally heard that um, that there, well, if I know, there are plenty of black Jews around the world. Not just in, not just in Israel, uh, but in the UK and, uh, and America and elsewhere who suffer discrimination, not, you know, they, they suffer discrimination, A, because they're black racists, also because they're white anti-Semites, but sadly, they also suffer racism amongst the Jewish community who, uh, who, uh, uh, uh are for the same racist reasons that you couldn't be a, that apply in any any community, um, and uh, like all these things, invariably it comes down to a lack of education, lack of understanding, lack of knowledge.
0: And this is where this word we were talking about before we went live. Intersectionality plays into where someone is suffering discrimination: a) because they're black, b) because they're Jewish, and c) because they're a different ethnicity of Jewishness. <laughs> And I was—I became hyper aware of this when I was when I was in Israel, about how the Filipino Jewish people within Israel tend to be the lower-paid um, domestic role type people, and there was a, a different way of talking about the Russian Jews who were there, yeah. and also the people who were born in born in Israel who'd done who, who had taken part in national service versus people who had. Uh, emigrated there be, and didn't do national service. Yeah. There's a whole hierarchy of Jewishness within their society and bias and discrimination yeah. that went on yeah and i remember having this fantastic conversation with a rabbi um he had his skull cap on he had what i would describe as typically a rabbi look <laughs> about him that, that, that bias sort of this is what i think a rabbi should look like type p- prejudice or perception and and we're having this fantastic chat he said yeah i know people think because i'm a rabbi i want to be really serious and i've got to you know you've got to talk to me like i'm some sort of um saint but no i'll I'll have a i'll have a beer with you and uh, have a drink with you and we'll have a good chat and and it was a really good really good i think we probably spoke for an hour hour and a half just just having a real chat about life the universe and everything Mm. like you do and completely dismissed any perception i might have about a person of his position within the faith and it was just a, a, a very relatable, fun human being. Uh, and so I, I've, I've, I think I've enriched myself quite a lot around the world, meeting different people. And that's the way we change perceptions. Absolutely. Meet different people. Yeah. yeah.
1: Very, very much so. And yeah, I I look back, you know, the, the first trans person I met was um, at the Magic Circle uh, many years ago. And they they were a few years older than me and they were quite angry at the way they'd been mistreated and discriminated against over their, their life. And I had tremendous sympathy for them. And it was some years later before I met other trans people, either in the magic world or in the speaking world. um, And and realized that not everybody is angry or not everybody, sorry, not everybody is visibly, overtly, consistently angry. Um, and uh, but equally, uh, yeah, so I and and one of the, the the relate related to that is within the PSA Professional Speaking Association. Um, and I mentioned to my my wife that uh. I, uh, well, I did know more trans people than her. She's 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 met trans people through uh, her work in over the years. We um, said, but you know, it, could that be because they are attracted to speaking and they are speaking about their experiences and lessons that could be learned or whatever? I said that is one of the reasons. However, two members of the PSA became members of the PSA long and 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 are not trans but have children who are transitioning or who have transitioned. And both had joined the PSA long before their children expressed a desire to transition. And what that tells me is it is far more common than we might have been led to believe. Uh, and that that was even more eye-opening, I think, than, than the number of trans people that I've actually met.
0: Hmm. I think I know. I think I know the two ladies you're talking about who have trans children. Yeah. Um, I've had conversations with both of them, and uh, often when I'm doing a gig, I mean, so some of the gigs I do are around trans awareness. So it's kind of obvious you're going to get people in the audience who've come deliberately because they want to be educated mm-hmm. or they have a trans interest. But often I, I, I do other gigs and it's surprising. You know, I went to Toastmasters for several years. I met people who had a, a trans relative mm-hmm. or a trans story. I've had friends in my old life who've got a, suddenly when I became open about myself, suddenly people say, well, oh, my neighbor, my, my friend, my this. So I find that there's – I think we're only one or two degrees, or one degree away from someone who knows someone who's trans in their family or in their life, so it is more common uh, that people have believe, and it's not just around the trans people; it's around the people who know that trans person. Oh, yeah, around people who support them or their work colleagues, or whatever. Um, I have a friend, friend of a
1: uh, friend, of a friend uh, who was an identical twin, and his his identical twin sadly passed at, in his, I think, mid fifties. Um, but had, had identified as trans and was planning to transition before he uh, suffered a brain, brain tumour. And for a while, this was long long before I knew the friend of a friend, but apparently for some time, the perception amongst the family was the brain tumour must have been affecting him. And that's what caused it. It was a big concern the The friend of the f- friend, who's the surviving twin, couldn't grasp and understand this because they were identical twins. How could they have different feelings, There's such different feelings in this regard, when apparently in everything else their feelings were so similar? Um, it's fascinating, but it, it it's very
0: close. Yeah. But if you look at a lot of the language, a lot of the way people see the world, you know, if you're if you're not disabled, if you're Straight, you're not gay, if you're not trans, if you're all these things, the, what you're not tends to be wrong, bad, yeah. evil, needs to be fixed. So, non trans people want to fix trans people. So, we need to put methods in place so that trans people don't be trans. Well, why don't we make it so that trans people can be trans? Absolutely. No, no big deal. Yeah. Then, in the same way we talk about the social model of disability, I also talk about the social model of discrimination. It's decided yeah. that puts the barriers in place. Based on this normality that we've propagated, the social constructs of normality. And, you know, you see people doing DNA or you know, sequencing and research and say, well, we found what causes Down syndrome. We can stop ever having Down syndrome in children in the future. Whilst I, I accept from a, my, my normal brain kind of perspective is that I can see the advantages of not having Down syndrome people, not bringing people through that. But that means denying that child the opportunity to life, denying that child the opportunity to have great parents, parents to look after them. And why do we see Down syndrome as being wrong? Bad, evil, needs fixing. Someone who's deaf, do we need to fix someone who's deaf or do we need to make sure that they can celebrate their life in the way they want to leave it? So I'm very very wary that sometimes that, that we end up framing it so that anyone who's not typical needs to be fixed or needs to be helped or there's some benevolence out there. We need to stop that ever happening again. I think we, we went through these conversations when, when people were gay, People who are black, people yep. with disability, people who are deaf. We have, and we're having the same conversation now about people who are trans, saying we need to fix people so they don't become trans, rather than saying let's embrace people. Absolutely. Make it make it make it, make it a choice. So yep. you, you can live your life if that's who you are. Go and live your life. And there's no barriers.
1: Is it, was it um, and, yeah. uh, another speaker who we we both know uh, gave a talk a couple of years ago at PSA annual convention and talked about? Was it an Indian culture that has 20 or
0: 30? Oh, Ricky, Ricky Arundel. Yeah, yeah there's, uh, there's there's cultures around the world. But what happened was obviously the Western world, England, Spain, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, exported Catholicism, Protestant faith, religion, um, Christianity around the world. And with that came prejudice, bigotry, yeah. and the white the white way, with a W, the white way of doing yeah. things. Our, our social construct, our hierarchy, our government, which I'm not saying some of that didn't benefit the cultures, but it also left a legacy of of racial racism, um, sexism, and straight you know, homophobia and, and transphobia. So still a lot of the Commonwealth still have anti-LGBT laws, which we exported to them.
1: Which is very strange. India, but
0: you mentioned India. The, the Hidra in India were kind of revered, sort of third gender mm-hmm. uh, and they, they, were, they were celebrated and now they're kind of marginalized they live in their own little corralled houses bought out to initiate ceremonies and almost like packed back off Gosh. so they're still stigmatized they're, they're not mainstream they're still they're still kind of seen as outsiders whereas several hundred years ago before we before the british arrived they were kind of part of society in the same way that other trans or third gender or, or dual gender or, or fluid people in other in other civilizations are still celebrated. You know, if you look at the Aboriginals and you look at the Maoris, you look at some, uh, some of the uh, North American native uh, First Nation people in North America, they have this sort of concept of, of multiple genders. There's no fixed binary, how they talk about gender. Is, is, is not in the, in this binary male-female sense. There's probably five or six different ways of expressing yourself. And none of those are male or female. So yeah, we uh, we have this invention that we created.
1: And I, 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 it's always helpful being reminded of that because I th- think we have a tendency to assume that what we know is right, as you said before. Yeah, anybody who's different is, is wrong. And I'm, more, as I said before, I'm more aware of that because there's an element of me that is, is different, and it's very frustrating when you hear nonsense being spoken by those in power who don't understand these things and have never experienced uh, any form of bias or discrimination, and perpetuate the idea that we should all be the same. And we should all do things the way it's always been done. I'm fascinated to have my mind being opened to a broader awareness of diversity within the world in all ways, shapes and forms yeah. and to reducing the discrimination. It, bottom line is we're still going to choose to spend time with people we can relate to. You know, I don't spend much time with people who are into football or cricket or rugby. And that make, marks me out as being very you know, that, that marks me out as being more different to most blokes than anything else about me, uh, but equally it means I relate better to those other blokes and women and who and uh, uh, people of no preferred gender uh you know i'll, I'll try i'll try and get the terminology right but i won't always succeed but at least i'm trying um but it, but it yeah you know, i'm more likely to find something in common with people who are not heavily sports orientated that doesn't make me wrong yeah i uh, I, could, uh, I, I, I won't but insult you okay. into
0: sports yeah but that is one thing that makes it a professional speaking association for, as an example or Toastmasters or other interest clubs, if you like, or organizations, because you do cut through a whole cross section of society. Yeah. You could be a football supporter and a cricket supporter or a rugby fan. But our common interest is speaking, educating, training, standing up in front of people, using our our voice and brain to earn a living, not our hands sort of thing. So that's kind of what binds us together. Yeah. And we're quite a diverse bunch. We, we we have people from lots of different sectors, uh, a fair gender balance. Um, Very nice. Maybe we're still a little bit too white. We, we need to yeah. work on our ethnicity balance yeah. and, uh, and make sure that we are being open to that. And also maybe looking at younger generation about how people are earning money through YouTube and online. But, yeah, but, Twenty twenty has given us an example now of, of of how we can earn money online. There's maybe professional speaking was always seen as stage speaking, wasn't it? But now we, I think, we're more open to the concept that speaking is a is a as an activity can happen online or face to face. So maybe we'll open up to to more more than modern YouTubers and the online marketers. So
1: it's true. It's uh, that, also true of yeah. local business networking events as well. It's all it's all too easy to. Yeah, I, I like to be a welcoming person whenever I'm at an event where I'm, whether I'm a host or not, I go and talk to people I don't know, people who are there for the first time. There's a temptation to go up to people who you feel you're going to get on with uh, and relate to and have something in common with. And you step out of your comfort zone sometimes and go and talk to somebody less likely. And I, I'm thrilled at some of the relationships that I've developed over the years because I've stepped out of what historically might have been my comfort zone. and encourage others to do the same.
0: Hmm. That reminds me. I was speaking at a conference in London last year, and the organisers have put on some graffiti artists making a graffiti wall with big, you know, the big spray paints yeah. and spray cans, and they're inviting the delegates to go and spray uh, and fill it in different bits, and then sign their name in the bit they filled in. And I, I saw these these two guys looking like typical you know your your prejudicial sort of stereotype graffiti artist with with beanie hats and and sort of boots and shaggy trousers and, and and all this kind of sort of as you'd imagine sort of like your graffiti artist stereotype to be and i just have started having a chat with him it turns out that one uh had run billion pound businesses <laughs> and he got tired of it and decided to get out of it and he started finding he found street art and he said they've decided to legitimate, to legitimize what they're doing because they found it a bit tricky. They kept, they kept having near misses of getting arrested for doing it on, <laughs> on public wall. So now they set up this, this business to corporates where they, they turn up with graffiti walls and, and create an event graf- uh, graffiti. Fantastic. And invite delegates. And so they're proper business people. And I, I know I've probably spent about an hour and a half talking to them. And I was, I chat to some people at the end of the conference because I was talking about diversity and inclusion. And I just happened to say, has anybody else in the room had a chat with a graffiti artist yet? And there was no hands on them. I said, well, you should do it. They're fantastic people. Why have we chosen to network with ourselves and not with them? Because they're seen as the hired help. They're yeah. seen as different, whatever. So often by by talking to people that are not the obvious choice in your in your network, yeah. actually you can meet some fantastic people. Totally. And I've had some really, really enlightening conversations with people that I, I've just gone up and said hello to.
1: Now, I'm, me, me, the same, and I encourage everybody to do it. Uh, overcome your personal prejudices and, and bias, and it's like anything uh, I said before. Practice makes permanent. Um, practice can certainly make an improvement and uh, change things for the for the better if you if you give it a go.
0: For sure, I've got to ask you. you you've got to. A nickname of bookmark lee do you want to, you want to tell people
1: what, what's that <laughs> yeah well when when i <laughs> thank you for asking when i first uh, went freelance uh, and i was thinking about what domain name to choose my, my name mark lee is amazingly common um there was a, an actor mark lee who appeared in the film gallipoli with mel gibson who's now an actor director uh there are various American sports stars. There's a Philippine, uh, a Philippine comedian, uh, a Chinese rap artist, uh, just to name a few. The first astronaut to go into space with his wife, whatever that means, was also Mark Lee. So I wasn't going to get a domain name for, my, for myself. And The first idea was to go with askmarklee.co.uk. And then a friend remembered that some years previously I'd been thinking of creating a flyer, promotional flyer for entertaining at uh, gigs for, for, for grown-ups in the days when I did that sort of thing, and that he'd include the designer had included a tear-off magic wand that could also be used as a bookmark. And that idea evolved to become well. How about bookmarkly? Because that's what I wanted people to do. So I took the book name. I took the website bookmarkly.co.uk. For the benefit of those listening in colour, I'm holding up a coloured bookmark, which uh, is my business card. In the days when we used to give out business cards in the shape of a bookmark, uh, and that's been through various evolutions over the years. And my. Name on LinkedIn, on in terms of my uh, uh, you know, my, my personalized URL on LinkedIn is Lee, Facebook business page is bookmarkly. Twitter handle bookmarkly. Uh, so it hasn't happened recently, but every now and again, I used to get emails addressed "Dear Book," <laughs> dear book, and then <laughs> and then because invariably it was an assistant who would come back and apologise two minutes later go, "Sorry, it's Mark, isn't it?" Uh, which frankly I always prefer that to when somebody addresses me as Lee by mistake. Cause again, the name uh, switches yeah. backwards and forwards as, as well. Uh, so that's, that's the origin of why some people refer to me as bookmark Lee. It makes me more memorable. So, and I, so I it does there. and that's magic
0: and, as I yeah, say.
1: Absolutely. Find, find the magic. Find the magic. Yeah, I'm going to use that. I haven't well, used I- it before, but I'm going to. <laughs> yeah.
0: Find the magic. Yeah. Well, uh, this is the point in the in the uh, in the episode. Why nobody say how do people get in contact with you? But I think we've established that bookmarklee. Uh, is is a very good way, of, or search for bookmarklee on on Google. They'll, they'll come across you. You're the inspiring, founder of the Tax Advice Network, um, author of the, the Magic Success. Is that a weekly yep, um,
1: mail we, shop? We, Not, weekly mail shop, primarily for accountants, bookkeepers, and tax advisors. The the Tax Advice Network. Um, about a year ago now we uh, also have the domain findataxadvisor.online because that makes it clearer what it actually is um, so uh, if you go to findataxadvisor.online if you want to find one then it's a great place to do that and I'm chairman of the chairman of the network
0: fantastic that's absolutely amazing well it's been an inspiration talking to you. We've had a bit of a laugh and a giggle as well. And you're certainly not a a boring old accountant as uh, you're you're far more fun as a magician, uh, uh, a social media, your your presence on social media. You're you're quite big on LinkedIn at the moment. people can find you there. So there's much to take inspiration from. So a huge thank you to the listeners for tuning in and listening all the way to the end. Uh, please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast. That's B I T S. Tell your friends, if you have any, and your colleagues. I'm sure they'd love to listen too because I've got a number of exciting guests. Are more exciting? No, it can't be more exciting, but we've got more guests lined up that I'm sure you would be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And remember also, if you'd like to be a guest, if, you're, if you think you're exciting, think you're inspirational, then please do drop me a line and tell me your story. Uh, I welcome any feedback and suggestions you may have how we can improve the show to joe.lockwood at cjchappin.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.